0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 49, Deuteronomy, chapters 33 and 34, the end of our study of Deuteronomy. Well, this week we complete our nearly five-year-long journey through the Torah. And after we complete the Torah, we're going to begin the book of Joshua. That starts next Saturday night. And part of the reason for proceeding this way is because Joshua is often called the sixth book of the Torah. Joshua tells of the fulfillment of the Torah in the sense that it completes the journey of the Israelites from Egypt into the Promised Land. Now if we stopped at the end of Deuteronomy, then we would have Israel... Prepared to enter, standing on the border, waiting for the Lord's signal to come into the place of rest that he had readied for them. But the goal of the Exodus wasn't so much the journey. The goal lay at the end of the journey, the actual possession of the land. Now we left off last time with Deuteronomy 33, 9. Moses' blessing upon the priestly tribe of Levi. And I ended with something that I want to take a moment to review and to comment upon. It is the words of verse 9, chapter 33, in light of its counterpart in the New Testament, Luke fourteen twenty-five, Deuteronomy 33, 9 says this. Of his father and mother, the Levites, he said, I don't know them he didn't acknowledge his brothers or children, for he observed your word and he kept your covenant. This was referring back to the tragedy of Exodus 32, when Moses was returning from the summit of Mount Sinai with those Ten Commandments in his arms, only to find all Israel making merry and worshiping a golden calf. That Aaron, the soon to be high priest of Israel, had fashioned for the people because they, they pressured him into doing it. At least that was his story. Moses pronounced that God was going to destroy all those who stayed in allegiance to that false God and then said that all who stood with Jehovah should come and stand with him. Aaron, Aaron's sons and the bulk of the tribe of Levi rushed to Moses' side, well, at least partially, because Moses was a Levite. So this was simple tribal loyalty. But on the other hand, those who ran to Moses believed Moses' words that this was the point of decision. This was the moment that the people would be separated into those who were for God versus those who united themselves with another indifferent God. It then became the unpleasant task of all those loyal to the Lord to put to the sword the thousands of rebellious Hebrews who refused to turn from their idolatry. And among those who would refuse and thus become targets were the very mothers fathers, children of some of those Levites who had gathered to stand with Moses. Can you imagine the torment of those who thrust their swords and daggers into the hearts of their own parents? In some cases, into their own sons and daughters. Yet despite this pitiful and awful duty of those in allegiance to Yahweh, it wasn't of their own minds, but it was at Yahweh's order that they do it. They didn't of themselves want to do it. They didn't feel any animosity. They didn't feel any hate towards their families and friends. It was a matter of obedience. And it was God's typical way, really, of meeting out justice upon human beings. He regularly uses human beings to bring His justice to fruition. See, it's in this backdrop that we have Yeshua's disturbing words from Luke 14 that have been so often misconstrued by Messiah's own disciples. There in verse 25... Yeshua says this to some Jews who were considering following him. Luke 14.25 Large crowds were traveling along with Yeshua and turning, he said to them, Now if anyone comes to me and he doesn't hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life besides, he cannot be my disciples. Now, although Yeshua wasn't suggesting that new disciples kill their relatives or hate them in the common sense of the word hate as we use it today, it does mean that those potential disciples should disregard those relatives if they stand in the way of turning their lives over to Messiah. The message is that if your family makes you choose between a relationship with Christ and one with them, you must accept him over them. The Hebrew sense of what is commonly translated in English as hate means to reject or to have no regard for as opposed to our modern sense of the word hate, which is to have this most intense level of dislike or disdain that's that's even possible for somebody. So Jesus is not telling his would-be disciples that they're to develop an almost sociopathic animosity for their relatives. He's telling them that they must show no regard for the wishes of these close family members if they insist that this potential disciple is not to give loyalty to Yeshua as Lord and Savior. Now often this verse in Luke is held up wrongly against the commandment to honor your mother and father. That is that Yeshua spoke a new command that abolished the former one. Now, I know personally of cases, and others have spoken to me of of cases, where a young man or a woman has decided that he or she wants to enter Christian ministry and the parents forbid it. And he or she goes ahead and does it anyway, and this is considered as a tension between the Torah command of honoring your mother and father and Christ's command to hate your mother and father, if necessary, in order to do the work of our Savior. Now, while this doesn't necessarily answer the question of just what that particular young person ought to do in such a circumstance, the point is that Jesus' statement in Luke is not in contrast to the Torah commandment to honor our mothers and fathers. It is in comparison to what happened at the golden calf incident at the foot of Mount Sinai. By the way, don't ever think that what was required of God's loyalists out there in the wilderness is a thing of the past that you and I may not be confronted with because, you know... At the battle of Armageddon. Yes. That line is going to be drawn again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With those allied to Jehovah on one side. And those against on the other. And there is no middle ground possible. And just as at one point. All those Israelites who had joined together. In the idolatry of the golden calf. But at the mediators call. Some of them realized what they were doing and they repented of it. And they stood with God. So it is with every human being who's a believer. Every one of us was born opposed to God. Every one of us. Putting us in a similar position to those Israelites who worshiped the golden calf. And we had to at some point make a conscious decision to accept God's call to leave the old way with all of its loyalties and instead to come and stand with Him. As the book of Revelation makes brutally clear, it will be our tragic duty as those who choose to stand with Messiah to follow His orders to join Him in a holy war. And as holy warriors to go against and kill all those who are opposed to God. And that in some cases may include our own family members, just as it did for the Levites. So if you've never found an urgency within yourself to bring the good news to your family members, you might want to consider that in the not too distant future you may be standing before them Sword in hand, with no choice but to be the one who acts as God's agent to end their existence and send their dark souls into the everlasting fire. This is the human condition from which God is in the process of saving us. This is the devastating consequence of sin. Therefore, as a result of what the Levites did in verse 9, they have been rewarded with the privileges pronounced in verse 10. They will be the instructors of the people of Israel in righteousness and holiness. Despite the fact that they were terrible rebels at one point, moments before, they will serve the Lord directly by the various rituals set down in the law. Let's reread part of Deuteronomy 33. Open your uh, complete Jewish Bibles, if that's what you have, to page 238. Deuteronomy 33, we're going to begin, uh, make that page 239. We're going to begin at verse 9. I'll read it to the end. He's speaking of Levi and he said let your Tumim and Urim be with your pious one whom you tested at Massah with whom you struggled at Merba." Of his father and mother he said I don't know them. He didn't acknowledge his brothers or children for he observed your word. He kept your covenant. They will teach Jacob your rulings. Israel your Torah. They will set incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Adonai, bless his possessions, accept the work he does, but crush his enemies hip and thigh. May those who hate him rise no more. And of Benjamin, he said, Adonai's beloved lives securely. He protects him day after day. He lives between his shoulders. And of Yosef, Joseph, he said, May Adonai bless his land with the best from the sky, for the dew and for what comes from the deep beneath, with the best of what the sun makes grow, with the best of what comes up each month, with the best from the mountains of old, from the best from the eternal hills, with the best from the earth, all that fills it, and the favor of him who lived in the burning bush. May blessing come on the head of Joseph, On the brow of the prince among his brothers, his firstborn bull, glory is his. His horns are those of a wild ox, and with them he will gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. These are the myriads of Ephraim. These are the thousands of Manasseh. Now Zebulun, he said, rejoice, Zebulun, as you go forth, and you, Issachar, in your tents. They will summon peoples to the mountain and there offer righteous sacrifices, for they will draw from the abundance of the seas and from the hidden treasures of the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed is he who makes Gad so large. He lies there like a lion tearing arm and scalp. He chose the best for himself. When the princely portion was assigned, and when the leaders of the people came, he carried out Adonai's justice and his rulings concerning Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion cub leaping forth from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, You Naphtali, satisfied with favor, full of blessing from Adonai, take possession of the sea and of the south. And of Asher, he said, May Asher be most blessed of sons. May he be the favorite among his brothers, bathe his feet in oil. May your bolts be of iron and bronze and your strength last as long as you live. Yes, Sharon, there is no one like God riding through the heavens to help you, riding on the clouds in his majesty. The God of old is a dwelling place with everlasting arms beneath. He expelled the enemy before you. He said, destroy. So Israel lives in security. The fountain of Jacob is alone in a land of grain and new wine, where the skies drip with dew. Happy are you, Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by Adonai. Your defender helping you with your sword of triumph. Your enemies will cringe before you, but you will trample down their high places. The next tribe to receive Moses' blessing was Benjamin. And Benjamin would occupy a small territory that's kind of a buffer region between the two most powerful tribes, Ephraim and Judah. In fact, Jerusalem and the Holy Temple would be built at the southern border of Benjamin's allotted territory. You know... I see in the Apostle Paul a kind of prophetic spiritual illustration of Benjamin's geographical and political position. Because St. Paul was a Benjamite. And he was assigned to interface with Gentiles. See, he was to be a buffer between Gentiles and the Jews. Verse 12 says that Benjamin is Adonai's beloved. In other words, Benjamin was looked upon with special favor and that the Lord would rest beside Benjamin. And I think this is a direct reference to the wilderness tabernacle that would rest for a long time in Benjamin's territory and then later the temple would be built in Benjamite, Jerusalem. Verse 13 deals with Joseph, or better put, the Joseph tribes. And the primary attributes of the Joseph tribes, who are represented by Ephraim and Manasseh, are fruitfulness and increase. Now, this fruitfulness is even expressed within the meanings of the names of Yosef, which means, may he increase. And Ephraim, God has made me fertile. And in that era, the number one requirement for fruitfulness was rain and water. No rain meant no crops and no pasture land. And that's the meaning of the statement about dew from the sky as a blessing. And in the complete Jewish Bible, we see a sixfold use of the word the best for what Will come to jote to the Joseph tribes. The Hebrew word for that, though, is mered, mered, and it probably a better word to translate it is bounty, abundance, rather than best. Okay, the bounty from the deep is referring to the springs and the fountains from the underground water sources. The abundance of sun was needed for crops. And in Israel, there's so much sun that they can produce four crops per year. Since months and seasons were, meant, were measured by the moons and their phases, this mention of the bounty of the moon is, as in all previous references to it, agricultural. The bounty of the mountains and hills were trees, wood, limestone, precious metals, various kinds of food. Then it said that all this fruitfulness is to be on the head of Joseph, who is the prince among all of his brothers. Now let me remind you, because unless and until we understand the position of Joseph and his representative tribes, of Ephraim and Manasseh, and then also the the position of Judah, then we can misunderstand much prophecy and many New Testament passages. Joseph received only half of the firstborn blessing from his father Jacob. The other half of that firstborn blessing went to Judah. The traditional Hebrew firstborn blessing, you see, consisted of two parts. One part was this transference of power and authority over the tribe or nation to that firstborn son from the father. And the other part was the giving of more material wealth to the firstborn than to the rest of the inheritors. The latter part was called the double portion blessing because in general the firstborn received a double amount, twice as much as any of the siblings. So in, in a very unusual act, though, that violated Middle Eastern custom, Jacob divided that firstborn blessing and gave authority over the nation to Judah and the double portion of wealth to Joseph. Or better yet, the double portion blessing was assigned to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who had been given elevated status on par with Jacob's sons instead of their natural position as actually Jacob's grandchildren. But then we get this strange epithet about the Joseph tribes in Deuteronomy 33 verse 17 that says he is like a firstling bull in majesty and that he has horns like a wild ox. Now a firstling bull is one of the highest sacrifices that can be offered at the tabernacle. We read all about this in Leviticus. It is second only to the mature three-year-old bull. And it denotes great strength. A firstling bull means a bull one year old. Now a wild ox goring its enemies is symbolic of a strong warrior that's mighty in battle. So we go from the Joseph tribes being fruitful to their also being great in numbers, possessing a great army and being good warriors. Then the relative proportions of the Joseph tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, are spoken of in prophetic terms. Ephraim, we're told, will consist of myriads, which means tens of thousands. Manasseh will consist of thousands, a whole lot, but not as many. And this is proven to be accurate. Ephraim eventually dominated the northern regions of Israel along with nine other northern tribes, including his brother tribe Manasseh, and all of them came under his, Ephraim's, dominance. They also eventually extended their reach to the ends of the earth, but it came in in a very ironic way. They were conquered by the Assyrians and forcibly scattered throughout the vast Asian continent the bulk of the people of the ten tribes that were scattered quickly became Gentiles as they mixed so thoroughly with the many Gentile races of Asia that so many lost their Hebrew identity. By the way, this was prophesied by Hosea and Isaiah. And in the book of Hosea, God said that those ten tribes would become a Lo-Ami, A non-people to him. However, as we've only recently discovered, a representative remnant of each and every one of those supposedly ten lost and extinct tribes has been found intact. And each one of them with a strong identity to its ancient Israelite tribal name and heritage. Now, not surprisingly, one of the largest of those discovered lost tribes is Manasseh. And many of them, by the way, are now making Aliyah. They're, They're immigrating to Israel as we speak. Now, Zebulun is the next tribe that's discussed. Verse 18 says that the people of Zebulun will rejoice in their journeys. Zebulun has always been associated with trade merchants. Issachar is likewise told to rejoice in their tents. Tents were the permanent homes for herders, because they needed to be mobile. Issachar has always been associated with herding and ranching. A strong tradition about Issachar and Zebulun is also echoed in verse 19. They formed a solid partnership and allegiance with one another that brought prosperity to them both. Gad receives his blessings in verse 20. Enlarging Gad means to increase the population. Gad was one of three tribes that all or in part decided to accept territory outside of the promised land as their portion. In other words, on the east side of the Jordan River. Gad received perhaps the most outstanding pasture and cropland of any of the tribes. Gad was also known for having highly trained troops, although not necessarily the largest army. Therefore, the symbolism of fierce warriors is used as the verse says Gad lies there as a lion ready to attack. Verse 21 brings us, brings up this matter of Gad choosing to stay outside of the promised land when it says he chose the best for himself the best meaning prime, excellent, the prime, excellent land. Well, Dan, like Gad, is said to have lion-like strength and battle ability. The tribe of Dan was originally assigned the lowlands that abutted the famous or infamous Philistines, right along the coast here. And later, mainly as a result of being harassed by those Philistines, they migrated to the furthest northern reaches of the land of Canaan. There they conquered the city of Laish and changed its name to Dan and then they fell away from God and into terrible idolatry up there. Now, Naphtali was blessed with very fertile territory that was located on the west shore of the Sea of uh, Galilee. Up here, up here in this region, okay? And the land was rich, it was beautifully watered, and the climate was temperate. I know many of you have been up there. Boate, if I think if there was a second place outside of Jerusalem, I'd like to live, it would be there. it was it was just a wonderful place. They are also given the privilege of being the territory where the Messiah would be raised, in the town of Nazareth. Now, Asher is also blessed with fertility because he settled in the upper Galilee between Naphtali uh, and the Mediterranean Sea, on up this way. And the phrase says that Asher was the favorite of the brothers. This is poorly translated. It means... The most favored among the brothers in the sense that Asher was greatly blessed. Saying that Asher, by the way, would dip his foot in oil is not referring to petroleum. It means olive oil. And indeed that region is known for the high quality olive oil it produced dipping his foot in the oil is thought to mean that there was a great abundance of olive oil in his territory. Now, since Asher occupied the area that a major trade route and military highway crossed through, they had both the benefit and the danger that that came because of it. Therefore, Moses blesses Asher with the wisdom and the strength to take advantage of this economic situation and to guard against foreign armies by building stout defenses for security. Well, beginning in verse 26, having blessed each tribe now individually, Mm -hmm. Moses concludes by celebrating the good fortune of Israel as a whole congregation that they're going to be under the watchful eye of Jehovah. But before we go there, I wonder if anyone's noticed that not every tribe has been mentioned in this blessing. One has been skipped, Simeon, Shimon. Let's talk about that for a minute. Simeon and Levi were two sons of Jacob who received what essentially amounted to curses instead of blessings, Jacob's deathbed blessing of his children. Some years... Later, Levi showed great merit at the golden calf incident that we talked about at the beginning of the lesson. And so they wound up being selected as the Lord's designated priests, despite Jacob's curse on them, that would manifest itself in other ways. We won't get into that. But what of Simeon? Simeon was cursed along with Levi. Because together those two conspired to attack the helpless residents of Shechem in ages past for family revenge. History proves that Simeon wound up as a very small, non-influential tribe and found itself completely surrounded by Judah's territory. So it was pretty well doomed from the get-go. Not terribly long after the tribes of Israel settled in Canaan, the tribe of Simeon was absorbed by Judah and they vanished as a separate territory and generally speaking as a separate self-governing tribe. However, as usual, as was usual for tribal societies, the memory of the family of Simeon continued on. And so, many Hebrews identified themselves as having that tribal heritage, even though it no longer really functioned as a tribe anymore. Here's what I find interesting. We have Moses' last words in Deuteronomy 33, as spoken to the twelve tribes. But one of those tribes, Simeon, had been cursed. And so it was left out, leaving just 11 tribes. It's always been noticed that just as there were 12 original tribes of Israel, so also were there 12 original disciples of Jesus. One of these disciples was an infamous man named Judas Iscariot. And there's some argument over what Iscariot means. Some say it's referring to a geographical region called Creote. Others say it's a play on the word I Recall that Judas was a fundamentalist militant who was trying to foment another Jewish rebellion against the Jews' oppressor, Rome. Judas's actions show just how radical he was in turning Yeshua over to the authorities when he determined that Yeshua just wasn't going to be that deliverer of Israel that Judas had hoped for. Because Jesus simply wasn't a military leader with insurrection on his mind. Judas was a zealot. Zealot was the name of a Jewish political party. They might be compared to to some degree with Zionists today. People who feel that only Jews should occupy and govern the Holy Lands. One faction of the Zealot party back then was called the Sakari. And these men were out-and-out assassins who tried to enforce their brand of Judaism and patriotism on everybody else by means of intimidation. Everything considered, I tend to come down on the side of Iscariot being a wordplay on the term Sicari, and Judas likely being a known Sicari radical just because it fits like a glove. Now, where did Judas come from and who was his family? Now, the other disciples were all Galileans, but not much is known about Judas Yet we do find one very tantalizing piece of information about him in John thirteen twenty six. Sounds like this. Yeshua answered, It's the one to whom I give this piece of matzah after I dip it in the dish. So he dipped the piece of matzah and he gave it to Judas ben Simon, Judas son of Simeon. Hmm. What makes this tantalizing is that here we find that Judas is called the son of Simon or Shimon, Simeon. Here's the thing, Simon, Shimon, Simeon, is in the tribe of Simeon, they're, they're all the same Hebrew name, just transliterated into variant English spellings. Okay. It was the norm in the Bible era to identify a person by his tribe. So a Hebrew with the family name of Shmon would usually be expected to be attached by heritage to the tribe of Shimon, Simeon. You wouldn't, for example, name a person Levi if they were of the tribe of Ephraim or Manesha if they were from the tribe of Dan. So almost certainly, Judas was from the tribe of Simeon, long ago absorbed into the tribe of Judah, but still remembering its family heritage by retaining that family name. Okay, with that background, watch this. Okay, Moses was giving his final words to the 12 tribes only hours before his own death. And in his final words, words that amount, To a series of individual prophetic blessings over the tribes Moses mysteriously leaves out Simeon who had been given a cursed prophetic future by his father Jacob so the blessing of Moses was only upon 11 of the 12 tribes now we fast forward 13 centuries to the time of Yeshua and the night before he is to die Jesus is giving his final words to his disciples by means of offering blessings at the Passover table. All his disciples, all twelve of them, are there except for one. Judas. He disappears, fetches the temple guard, who arrests Yeshua, turns him over to the Romans to be tried and executed. Judas, who is from the tribe of Simeon, is cursed by his act, and then commits suicide. Now there's only 11 disciples. Knowing the power of God patterns, it's difficult for me not to see the prophetic pattern established in the blessing of Moses over those 12 tribes carried forward into the blessings by Messiah Yeshua over the disciples. The circumstances are eerily familiar. The fact that Moses and Jesus were both blessing twelve is the same. That it was immediately before their deaths that is the same. That one of the twelve was removed is the same. That one of the one who was removed was in both cases was associated with the Simeon tribe is the same. Now back to the blessings of Moses in Deuteronomy 33. Moses is now addressing all the tribes as a group. And he begins his final words by acknowledging the greatness of the God of Israel. And he ends those words with the same message he had at the beginning. He pleads with Israel, once again referred to as Yeshurun, the upright one, to understand that it is pointless, pointless to ever fall into worshiping other gods because none of them measures up to Jehovah. Among the things that Jehovah does for Israel from his heavenly throne is to help them in time of need, or to be a refuge for them, or to support Israel, to be a foundation and an underpinning for Israel. And since God is from everlasting to everlasting, he'll always be there for them. Moses reminds Israel, that it was the Lord who drives out the enemy before them. It's the Lord who causes Israel to dwell in safety and security. It's the Lord who gives Israel abundant rains and brings around, brings about plentiful grain and wine. It's the Lord who has delivered Israel from Egypt. It's the Lord who constantly watches over Israel and protects them against the known and unknown dangers. And if they will only be faithful to the Lord the Lord will make Israel's enemies cringe. He'll make them fall on their faces before Israel. And Israel will put their foot on their enemy's back. See, that's a rather standard image for that time. A victor pushes the vanquished to the ground and places his foot on the upper back by his neck is an indication that the former enemy is now fully under the victor's control. Let's move on to Deuteronomy 34. i going to read Deuteronomy 34, chapter, uh, chapter 34, all of it's pretty short. Yeah. Chapter 34. Moses ascended from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the summit of Pisgah, across from Jericho. And there Adonai showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, all the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the land of Judah, all the way to the sea beyond, the Negev and the plain, including the valley where Jericho, the city of Date Palms, is as far away as Suar. And Adonai said to him, This is the land. Concerning which I swore to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov that I will give to your descendants. I let you see it with your eyes. But you will not cross over there. So Moshe, the service of Adonai, died there in the land of Moab, as Adonai had said. And he was buried in the valley across from Beit Peor in the land of Moab. But to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, with eyes undimmed and vigor undiminished. The people of Israel mourned Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days, and after this the days of crying and mourning for Moses ended. Now Yahshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the people of Israel heeded him, and they did what Adonai ordered Moses. And since that time, there's not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom Adonai knew face to face. What signs and wonders Adonai sent him to perform in the land of Egypt under Pharaoh, all of his servants, all of his land. What might was in his hand. What great terror he evoked before the eyes of all Israel. Grandfather Moses, after blessing those he's cared for day and night for the past 40 years as God's right-hand man, after having a few hours, maybe a day or two, to bask in the glow of just how far Israel had come, the tremendous opportunity that lay ahead of them, he now descends Mount Nebo to die. And verse 1 says that Nebo is in the Pisgah mountain range and opposite Jericho. Nebo is on the east bank, Jericho's on the west bank of the Jordan River. Jericho, by the way, is widely acknowledged, even by secular archaeologists, as the world's oldest known city. Now from Mount Nebo, Moses was shown by God the promised land. That Moses' people would inherit. The order of the tribe's territories, called out here in Deuteronomy 34, is as if Moses turned his head to the right, and then slowly swiveled it towards the left, in kind of a panorama. It's as though his eyes were sweeping from the northernmost part of the land, back towards the west, and then to the south and says the Lord this is the land I've sworn to your ancestors now, I've made this point before but let me make it again as emphatically as I know how the land of Canaan was the promised land for Israel there is no other there is no alternative place that the Lord has prepared for Israel and there is no alternative people who have a right to occupy that land. There is no option A or B. Over the centuries and even within the last hundred years, there have been serious efforts by powerful men and national leaders to establish a new Jewish homeland in Europe, in Africa. Anywhere but in the place that the Lord set apart for the Hebrews. From the very day, a little over 60 years ago, that the UN voted to allow the Jewish people to have a Jewish nation in their ancient homeland, the world's leaders have openly regretted it. And they've never ceased to try to reverse that reality in one way or another. I have no intentions of standing up here and making a political statement. But it's obvious that the the current Obama administration, the Bush administration it replaced, the Clinton administration before that, had and continue to have no interest in honoring the biblical holy lands for what they are. A holy place like no other place on earth that belongs only to God. And then he set it aside for his people. It doesn't matter how many photos there are of these presidents bowing with their heads down in prayer, calling on the name of Jesus in public, standing up and speaking of defending Israel and Israel's right to exist. The Israel they wish to defend is an Israel they wish to invent. Even define on their own terms. This is greatly offensive to the Lord and we're going to all pay an enormous price for this. Sooner than later, I think. Because this this arrogance by our elected leaders to push for a Palestinian state in the promised land to declare even that Islam should have the legitimate right to maintain a pagan shrine to a false god on the holy temple mount and for our indifference to the whole thing. Nations and empires have arisen and fallen for underestimating or ignoring the Lord and trying to take from His hand what belongs to Him alone. Now could Moses have seen with his human eyes all the way from Dan in the north to Zebulun to the west and Judah to the south? Of course not. No mountain peak was of sufficient height to allow that. But since the scriptures say that the Lord showed him the whole land, I suspect that Yehovah enabled Moses to see in a supernatural way. A land that couldn't otherwise be viewed except maybe from outer space or an orbiting satellite. Tradition is that Moses died six months to the day after his brother Aaron, the high priest, died. It was in the month of his death that would later be called Adar, which corresponds to late February, early March. The Lord himself is the tradition as to how Moses was buried, and so his actual burial place was kept secret. What would be the purpose for keeping his burial place secret? Undoubtedly, so that a shrine wouldn't be built there. Aggrandizing Moses. And so that place wouldn't become one where armies fought in the name of one religion or another. As men have been wont to do ever since there were armies. Over what religious authority would be over that holy place. I think it's significant that despite the amazing record of Jesus' ministry and passion on the cross that there is no definitive map of where his body was buried, entombed actually, even for that short three-day period of time. The garden tomb that one visits today in Jerusalem is but a guess. There's absolutely no evidence that that was actually Yeshua's tomb. Although it's very much like the tomb he would have been laid to rest in. Now, how is it that such a widely witnessed and attested to event wouldn't have the precise location of that tomb marked for all time? Because if it were certain, there would have been a shrine there. And people would worship the place instead of the one who was in it and then left it. You know, all you have to do is visit the Via Rosa. The traditional path that Jesus walked as he headed towards Calvary to see the gaudy, overdone, gold encrusted churches and shrines with all their statues, their marble floors with locations marked where Jesus stood or he knelt or he bled, supposedly. In verse 7, Moses tells us that, or rather, verse 7, the Bible tells us that Moses was 120 years old when he died. He was in good health, his eyesight intact. And when we go back to Genesis, we find that the Lord pronounced that 120 years was given as a lifespan for men. And yet we also find that many lived lives well beyond that age, others a lot shorter. 120 years is some type of idealized lifespan in the Lord's mind, so it's no coincidence that Moses lived precisely that long. Now Moses would be mourned for the standard mourning period, 30 days. And for that 30 days Israel stayed at their camp in Moab preparing to enter the promised land to be led by their new military and civil leader, Joshua, Yahashua. And we're told that Joshua son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid hands on him. Now this is a widely misconstrued Verse. It sounds in plain English as though Moses somehow supernaturally himself put a spirit of wisdom into Joshua by means of ritually laying his hands on him. In fact, this is an idiomatic expression that defines a common act involving the new and former leaders of a nation. The outgoing leader would lay his hands upon the incoming leader in a public ceremony as a gesture and physical confirmation of the transference of authority. Nothing supernatural is really hinted at in that process. Rather, it is made clear in the scriptures that God gives the spirit of wisdom to all the leaders of Israel. They don't just transfer it among themselves. So because Joshua became the leader of Israel as indicated by Moses laying his hands on him then God gave uh, uh, Joshua a spirit of wisdom so that he could properly lead his people. Moses was never equaled by another prophet until Yeshua of Nazareth 1300 years later. Jews, other than for Messianics, would vehemently disagree with that statement, of course. And the reason for the statement of verse 10 is to make it clear that as great and venerated and valid with the coming prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others, they would not be like Moses in status. Nothing they would ever say could override What Moses said. Nothing would be added to Scripture in the future by means of those words that God's prophets would utter that could override the principles and the laws contained in Moses' words. And let me tell you, church, if the prophets of God couldn't override Moses, neither can a pastor or a priest or or a pope, or a bishop, or a rabbi, or even a popular televangelist. (laughs) Let me also tell you, in complete confidence, that neither did Yeshua's words override Moses' words. I don't even have to speculate on this. Because that's exactly what Messiah said. I refer you this one last time before we complete our study of the Torah to Yeshua's own undisputed words of Matthew 5, 17 through 19. I think this is a great way to finish off this chapter. The study of Torah. Do not think... That I came to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yud or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not till everything that must happen has happened. So now whoever among you disobeys the least of these commandments and you teach others to do so, you will be called least. In the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them, whoever teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now that's pretty definitive. Jesus brackets the subject of whether he came to do something or anything to the books of Torah and the prophets in this way. He says in these verses of Matthew that on the one hand he sure didn't come away, uh, come uh, to do away with them in their entirety and on the other he didn't even come to change one tiny letter of them. That's about as thorough and sweeping of a statement that a Jew could make on the subject. Now Christ was indeed a greater prophet and a greater mediator, mediator than Moses. Yeshua was and remains and always shall be the ultimate prophet and mediator because he's also our redeemer. But even he, with such absolute authority from Jehovah that he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, said outright, he didn't come to abolish, change, subtract from, add to, or even challenge the words of Moses. So in the coming weeks and months and maybe years, as the Lord wills it, as we study together more of the Old Testament and incorporate into our study the words of the New Testament, keep what I just told you closely as a touchstone. For to stick to Torah is life. To deviate from it is death. Mm -hmm. That ends our study of the first five books of Moses.